0: Hey, this is The Moment, I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. All right, well, my podcast guest today is one of my absolute favorite human beings in the world. My, and Amy's uh, eldest child, the incredible uh, writer, Probably the smartest guy I know, Sam Koppelman, whose new book, Our Unfinished March by Eric Holder, the former attorney general of these United States, and Sam Koppelman is in stores on Amazon and available everywhere right now and is being much talked about and celebrated because it is an excellent and uh, crucial book. It's a a book about why voting, why the franchise to vote is so incredibly important, the ways in which it has been threatened and taken away from those who need it most over the course of our history, and what we can do to ensure that that doesn't happen again. I'm so proud of you, Sam, for having uh, written this book and uh, just for how, how good it is. And, um, it's really fun to get the chance to talk to you during the course of uh, the work day. How you doing? Thank
1: you. Yeah, this is fun. Really honored you uh, said I'm the smartest guy you know. And, uh, you know, prayers to Andreessen.
0: No, Andreessen's smarter than
1: you. Damn it.
0: I, I you know, I, I was colloquially saying it. I wasn't really counting Mark Andreessen, who invented the internet. But I should have a different standard, right? Shy of Andreessen, the smartest guy I know, shy of Andreessen.
1: All right, I'll take it. My tweets are better than me, so. So,
0: let's start here. You're you're on uh, you're on a book tour of sorts right now, huh?
1: Yeah, um, the attorney general's running around the country, talking about this book and the right to vote, and uh, has been kind enough to let me go with him to a few of the venues. I'm in Ron DeSantis's Florida right now, which is, I guess, what Ron DeSantis would like you to think. Uh, one of the states that you know, is the epicenter of this attack on voting rights. We're going to be speaking in Coral Gables, home to, you know, lots of great Jewish and non-Jewish folks who uh, are going to ask questions about the book. And honestly, it's, um, you know, surreal to be going from place to place talking to Eric Holder, who not only, you know, one of the finest lawyers in the country, not only, first African-American attorney general and a great attorney general, but just like consummate gentleman, best speaker, such a pro, it's a crash course in how to do this kind of a thing. So it's been super fun and super rewarding.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that sounds thrilling, Uh, genuinely like a thrilling thing to get to do. And I know how thrilling it is for you to do that. Um, I know what uh, Attorney General Holder work he did meant to you then I know what the Obama administration meant to you and I want to I want to talk about a bunch of that I guess though let me ask you you know you're 26 years old I know you try to keep that a closely guarded secret but it's it's really not uh, a secret people can find out when you graduated from college and stuff mm. uh, but you're at a place where where you're a part of the culture that's talked about all the time and and that's You know your generation can really influence and should and will influence the direction of the country, which influences the direction of the world. And you're um, one of the people who's outspoken in your generation and who's found a a platform. But immediately, you know, um, I ask you, you're on a book tour, and 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 the first thing you say is Ron DeSantis, with you know, in a in a in a tone that is recognizably and appropriately, I think, sardonic. Uh, Hey, I'm in Ron DeSantis' Florida. That's what he'd want you to think, and this is where. And I guess what I want to ask you is like, is this constant state of pitch battle where it's not about, yeah, it's gonna be on a book tour where the weather is nice in a place that's, you know, (laughs) I can go outside and run, or yeah, getting to spread this message, or yeah, you know, I dreamed of being on book tours, but that the fa- sort of reflexive thing is like, fuck the Santos. Now I agree. Fuck the Santos, but, but I do want to talk about like how that feels to you. And as, as having to walk
1: around with your
0: fist balled metaphorically all the time.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. So I don't know. One of the fun and most rewarding aspects of, writing this book was doing the research for it and studying the history of voting rights. And there's sort of two takeaways. One is that the past is as grim as you could possibly imagine. I mean, you've read this book, but the shit people went through and the ways in which they were excluded from our democracy and then the things they had to do to become a part of it. Alice Paul getting fed through a feeding tube in jail because she refused to eat fighting for the right to vote, you know, Thomas Dorr and Seth Luther—they're leading a rebellion in Rhode Island for the right for white men to have the vote—and they end up having to bomb Dorr's family in the uh, Rhode Island capital. Like truly, some of the most unimaginable stuff. You look at Frederick Douglass, who goes from slavery, fights, uh, you know, joins Lincoln, Fifteenth Amendment, and then. Once that happens, decides that's not enough, is the fight for women's suffrage. Just unimaginable cruelty they faced. And then the second thing you realize is that these are human beings who found joy in that fight. And we try to end the book in this place. I quote Cody Keenan, who's my colleague and the brilliant speechwriter, chief speechwriter of President Obama. He's got a book of his own coming out later this year. But that there's like joy in this fight. And so I think the idea of dichotomizing this or juxtaposing it between, you know, you're either going to be in Florida enjoying the waves or, you know, fists up. I think what we have to do more of and what our generation doesn't do enough of is like find joy in this fight. Like the cool thing now, if you look at people my age, the way they post is like hands in the air, don't give a fuck pessimism. And there's some joy in that, too, you know, the idea that, like, we're all just going to die, might as well have fun. It is the genesis of that phrase, YOLO, um, that that people like to use. But at the same time, like, it's got to become cool to give a shit. Like, it's fun to fight. Like, there is joy in actually pointing out the ways in which we've fucked up and the world is messed up. And then doing the work to try to make it just a little bit better. And in terms of like the idea that we're in a constant fight or that, you know, we're up against these unique threats. Many of them do feel unique and are obviously extreme, but you look at that history and it's like, we've got it easy. Like, you know, we're doing this fight. There's, there's air conditioning in my hotel room right now in Miami. Like truly, like I've got the internet, I've got, I mean, indoor plumbing, I mean, indoor plumbing, indoor plumbing, I'm eating food that's better than the food that anyone in human history has eaten. You know, I was reading about Marie Antoinette. She ate Guinea fowl broth for most meals. Like that was the richest woman ever. And her food was just terrible. So, you know, if you just think about like where we're coming from, like, I don't know, there's a lot to complain about. It is a difficult time, but like, we are standing on a ground, especially me privileges. I have that is just so much more comfortable than anyone who's been a part of this fight throughout the entire history of our country. And so, I don't think that this is some kind of uniquely difficult thing to grapple with.
0: But if that's the case, and I agree in many ways with what you said about, you know, where where we find ourselves and, uh, you know, I've certainly read enough. I, as people who listen to this podcast know, I don't fake the funk ever. So I can't tell you that I've read all of Steven Pinker's books, but I've certainly read enough around uh, in in enough pages of Steven Pinker to know and understand the way in which civilization has moved forward and all that yeah. stuff. How, but there's a question for you. Like, uh, why, if that's the case, why do you think the forces have, uh, the, the force is trying to hold down freedom, you know, The forces of racism, the forces of anti-Semitism, the forces of uh, hatred, why have they turned it up to such a fever pitch that requires the other side to meet it in in that way? Or, Or is this just, in your opinion from studying all this, the state of what it means to be human that you have to uh, become tribal and have to find enemies.
1: Yeah. I mean, so the pinker stuff is right on at a high level in terms of the fact that we're living in a world with less hunger, less extreme poverty, less war than we've ever had before. Less famine. The thing is through all of that, our brains have stayed pretty much the same. So like, you know, the anxiety we used to have when there was a bear and we had to run away from it. Like the thing that's happening in your brain when you like, are like trying to decide between two dishes on the menu at a restaurant and have to pick which one to order. Like it's like a pretty similar thing that's happening in your brain. Cause the brain updates much slower than our conditions evolution takes place really slowly. And so At some level, there's like a human nature thing, which is like, we're never going to be fully satisfied. Our range of emotions are pretty constant. Material improvements do lead to more happiness to an extent. Obviously, if you have food to eat, you're going to be happier, more satisfied than if you don't have food to eat. But there's limits to that. Separately, and more importantly, I think the reason you even write this book is that the flip side of the history stuff about it all getting better is that you really learn that that's because of like a few agents who decided to keep on fighting, who kept winning battles against other people who were fighting and like won by the skin of their teeth and progress one can be snatched away pretty quickly. And that I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about with the attorney general tonight, because I'm actually moderating, which is not how this usually works. And the part of the book that just doesn't leave me the research that doesn't leave me is reconstruction. where like, you,
0: it's yeah. like, Completely. That part of the book killed me. That part of the book almost killed me dead. Talk about it. Please talk about it.
1: I mean, you know, you have the Civil War. All these people die. Our country makes all this real progress. And and we talk a little bit about why this history has been lost by lost cause propagandists and it's been erased and it's not taught in our schools. But after the Civil War, there was a period of time in which America was a multiracial democracy where the South Carolina state legislature had dozens of Black elected officials. W.E.B. Du Bois called it a moment in the sun, reflecting on it years later. And these weren't incompetent legislators as the films about this time made them out to be Birth of the Nation, whatever else. They were really good at their jobs. And as we know happens now, when you have more diverse leadership, it better reflects the interests of a diverse public. And so you saw education rates skyrocket from all across all races because of the educational policies enacted by this multiracial government. And then because of a confluence of factors, starting with Lincoln's assassination, but then continuing to include all sorts of various compromises that people in power made, that's just completely wiped away. Largely also due to the terrorism of the KKK and other organizations, mass slaughter, lynchings, and After Plessy, we enter this era of Jim Crow. All of the legislatures start being essentially entirely white again. And this isn't like some footnote period of time. This is like half a century in a country that's only been around for what? Five half centuries. And there's this huge period of darkness for our democracy. Whiteness, really. And then... People have to like find the strength to do the civil rights movement. After all of that, after escaping slavery, fighting against it, winning a war, seeing power, having it taken away, I had to like buck up, do the civil rights movement, win back those rights. And we're not in that dark 50-year period again. We still, for the most part, have our democracy intact. But we're definitely in that period towards the end of Reconstruction when everyone could have looked around and been like, how long is this thing going to last? Because there's like a lot of societal pressures. There's a lot of political pressures. Seems like the tide's started to turn again. And, you know, we elect a black president, which in many ways is treated by the media as the culmination of the civil rights movement. And immediately, as we talk about in the book, you start seeing this... Intentional, strategic, insidious, brilliant voter suppression across all the same states that ended Reconstruction in the first place, especially after the Shelby County ruling in 2013, which gutted the Voting Rights Act and made it so states that had previously been discriminatory, you know, all across the South, including the Confederate states, they could change their voting laws without any oversight from the Department of Justice anymore. Um, and in the decades since, We've just seen the consequences of that, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poll closures disproportionately in Black neighborhoods. If you look at Georgia in the last election cycle, which Democrats eked out, if you were in a Black precinct near Atlanta, the wait to vote was 55 minutes. If you were in a white precinct, it was like six minutes. Like, this is all because the Voting Rights Act was thrown out because of intentional policies that politicians have decided to enact. And we're in that moment now where most people still have the right to vote, more than had the right to vote any time before 1965. But there's a political party, one of the two major political parties, that thinks its future is predicated on limiting the number of people who can vote. And they have all sorts of structural advantages, institutional advantages in the Electoral College and the Senate. We can get into that if you want later. But... They have a real chance of succeeding, like, but for our action fighting back, they will succeed in essentially boxing all of these new people who entered our democracy since 1965 out of our democracy. And the only way it's not going to happen, the inertia that doesn't win is if we fight back. So that's where we are. And like, that's, these are the stakes and that's why we wrote the book. And it's why I think, you know, even as we find joy in the struggle, you got to also, match that with vigilance.
0: Well, this speaks to the question what we, we started that run out with was uh, about progress and about sort of in the ways in which this is the, the best, you know, people, we all say, oh, this timeline's the worst. But I mean, the truth is it's the best that uh, it's, ever, it's ever been. But you and Attorney General Holder in, the, in this book sort of make a point, I mean, you don't contradict Martin Luther King's idea that the uh, the moral arc of the universe uh, you know, bends toward justice. But you do say it's not inevitable. I mean, you specifically say progress is not inevitable. And yeah. and you're hinting at that in what you just said about these groups of people. But can you talk a bit more ab- about about your and the Attorney General's belief? I mean, am I, am I right in the way I paraphrase you exactly, what you said? You're
1: exactly right. And, you know, we like say history is not a Marvel movie. Like, you don't know what the ending is going to be. It's actually just up to the people in any given moment. And you know, it's why our society is so fascinated by counterfactuals, man in the high castle, whatever else, you know, what happens if Hitler would have won, cause it's just not. Uncle obvious.
0: Al, Alan Havey with a great appearance in that show, sorry.
1: Shout out Uncle Al. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you look at the history and you're amazed by that, you know, two steps forward, one step back progress that we've been able to make that blood, you know, we call it like that bloodstained expansion of our voting rights. But you really do see that it was all on a razor's edge could have gone either way. Like it really was just up to the people in a given moment. There was no guarantee that after Jimmy Lee Jackson's murdered in Selma, they're going to do a march and the state troopers are going to respond in the way they did. And it's going to be aired on TV the way that it was. And it's going to reach the White House and LBJ is going to have to pass a voting rights act. That was not predestined in any way. And that zig and zag of history, it really comes down to which side wants it more. And I think we make a huge mistake, serve ourselves short, if we don't take seriously how badly the Republican Party right now, as currently constructed, as led by Donald Trump, wants to eliminate huge swaths of the electorate and make this country a functional political apartheid.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. The only thing that I think my uh, extra 30 years on you tells me is um, is that eventually I think freedom wins. Eventually I think uh, um, liberty wins, but I think every minute of illiberty, every minute of, uh, uh, people, people's, uh, freedom constrained is an absolute living nightmare. And so making it happen quicker becomes incredibly important. And making
1: sure you don't roll back progress is important, but you know, when you look at the native Americans, that story just doesn't end like other stories about the progress to Liberty and freedom. Like that's, you know, millions and millions and millions of people who essentially have their land taken from them, their rights taken from them, restored in some ways in some places. But, you know, history is written by the victors. So the liberty of the people who are writing history at any given time is usually secure. And I do agree. Like, I do actually believe that the moral arc bends towards justice. I just think you got to bend it, which is sort of the point of the book. And yes, every year that you can save of people living without freedom is a massive accomplishment. Every year that... You know, being persecuted continues is a massive atrocity.
0: Well now it's good because you got your big sort of across the back tattoo. You gotta mend it. I mean you've been looking for that for a long gotta time. Bend now yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. you gotta mend it. A, I mean if I were a wrestler, that would be my Yeah. That's Batista it. You, could, God, yeah, you I hope could go Batista right across the tattoo. Does he? Think so. Who does? Which Batista? one? Batista? I think Batista had one. He might.
0: Uh he probably calls it a piece. Check out this piece I got on my back. You gotta look at the piece. And hey, (laughs) if you're listening and you have a piece, it's great, call it whatever you want. But Sam and I are gonna make fun of it. And you, just a little bit. All right, Um, I'll admit- But we fight for your freedom. Just type in a Google
1: search, Batista does have big back tattoo. All the hours I spent watching world wrestling, not wasted.
0: I mean, I like that you know uh, the names of every person killed in the civil rights struggle. And you also know that Batista had a back tattoo. I feel that mom and I have done our job. Not a
1: coincidence. I feel mom and I have
0: done our job.
1: On the night before my SAT or something, you made me go see Bruno San Martino get inducted into the World Wrestling Hall of Fame. I mean, that's not like some accident. That was uh, intentional parenting for better or worse.
0: I just told (laughs) that story two days ago to somebody.
1: (laughs) I'm there with my flashcards.
0: You're not just flashcards. Sammy, not just flashcards, you brought a giant study guide with you. (laughs) Like in a binder, like a giant study guide. Well, listen to the people listening. Uh, I mean, Bruno San Martino, my favorite wrestler of all time, Bruno San Martino from Abruzzi, Italy, was getting inducted into WWE Hall of Fame. And uh, there's no way my son wasn't coming with me to that, Uh, even if he had his his eyes set on the Ivy Leagues. Because you got to have it all. And, and it worked out, by the way. I'm glad I went. You, we have that memory. You saw me wooing for Ric Flair.
1: Yeah. Not sure where his politics are, which side of the struggle he's on. But
0: I know uh, which side he's on. Honestly, he whichever to, side.
1: I think he wants to figure four leg lock our democracy.
0: I think that Ric Flair is always working. And I don't think that there's any, I don't think anyone knows what's actually (laughs) underneath all of that in terms of a shoot or a work. That guy's working. He's always working. So whatever it is that's going to help him get over is what he's going to say. And and yes, right now he's a Trumpy guy, but he's the greatest heel in the history of wrestling. What's he going to get up there and say, uh, uh, I'm for voting rights for all? I mean, how's that going to help put asses in the seats for the next main event, son?
1: All right, I guess I got to get Batista on our side. He can take him out. Perfect.
0: Just switching gears a little bit to the sort of subject of the, the podcast in general. And, you know, we did an episode about how you at such a young age were able to begin doing all this. Uh, But so I I don't want to do those questions. Someone could go back and and they can find that. Here's a question, though, which is why write somebody else's book? What? Because I know that wasn't on your after impeach where you and Neil together felt like, you know, this is the most important thing. But I know writing someone else's book wasn't really on your list of things you wanted to do again. But 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 talk me through the, the decision trees on why to write somebody
1: else's book. Sure. So I mean just the real answer, besides this, you know, being a big part of my job is there's something really fun about getting to play make-believe. Like that's why I started doing speech writing in the first place. Where like, you know, if you get to pretend to be a seven foot tall NBA player one day in a speech and then get to pretend to be a climate activist another day, like that's pretty fun. Like there's just some fundamental human thing that likes playing make-believe. In terms of this book...
0: Oh, yeah, I should have uh, mentioned, which I didn't... Uh, sorry, I should have mentioned at the top of this that not only are you the author of this book, but you ran the circuit speechwriting on the Biden campaign. You worked very closely with Beto and the Beto campaign for You don't need to say president. what it was
1: for. We love all Beto campaigns. Whichever yes, one you is worked, we for, you know... we're <laughs> you work closely we're with, with Beto O'Rourke, the board. who
0: we're both huge fans of, and you've done speechwriting at the kind of highest level there are people we can't say but you got to write for a lot of the people who are your dream people to write speeches for but that's different than the commitment of writing a
1: book well, yeah so when you think about it like for this it's like all right there's a topic the topic is voting rights when they first came to me to help the attorney general write this book they're like this is a voting rights book from eric holder that's like, this is an issue i care about i could bring to bear my experience 26 years old upper west side of manhattan your son To talk about this. And I could do a ton of research and I could write a book on voting rights. Eric Holder was a kid in Queens watching in his basement's black and white TV set when John Lewis got his head bashed in at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Those memories helped inspire a career of public service that led to him becoming attorney general under President Obama. After his time as attorney general, running the NDRC, he's basically devoted his entire career to voting rights in our democracy. Getting to write a book informed by that perspective, enriched by those experiences, informed by that wisdom. I mean, that's just going to be an infinitely better book on this subject and helping folks like the attorney general, who are some of our great thinkers, get all of their words on the page in the exact right way and he was a remarkable collaborator and a lot of the very best lines in this book are completely his lines um but getting to work with him on that process is just truly invaluable as a a learning experience and i think um even you know just as valuable in terms of the final product which is what it is in large part because of the personal stories he shared i mean when he talks about reconstruction he's talking about what here, what learning about that did to him as a child. When I'm talking about it, it's just so much more abstract and theoretical.
0: Talk about how much, so those things you carry around about Attorney General Holder, you know, a lot of 26 year olds really don't know, couldn't name any attorney generals of the United States. They could barely name vice presidents of the United States that go back three administrations. Could you talk a little bit about how you were shaped by the promise of Obama's America and what, you know, how, how their administration, how, like I say, their rhetoric uh, helped shape you and, 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 and who you are and, and, and how and why you do what, what you do?
1: You know, I think about this a lot, like the generation of people who grew up and their first real political memory was Barack Obama becoming president cuz you see the gen z people and you look at their political tiktoks and they're just so depressed and so hopeless and think that climate apocalypse is looming and inevitable and why give a shit and then you look at the people from older generations who often have a much more you know wide-eyed rose-colored Take understanding of America and its founders, and like there, we're this weird generation that like, like I remember that feeling of hope that like you could really run an insurgent political campaign, grounded in ideas of fairness and justice, driven by the idea, that, yes, we can. We the people actually have power. Got to see that, president succeed in so many ways, saw the administration fall short and others, obstructed by newly intransigent and in many cases, evil Republicans in Congress. And we're this generation that saw that and then followed it right up with Donald Trump coming to power and with all of these institutions around us beginning to collapse one by one like they're built with paper mache and, you know, that, that leads to this sort of like duality in my understanding of politics, which is that shit really can go to shit. Like it can really be, it's brutal out here as Olivia Rodrigo poet of our generation says, but at the same time, like you, you can make progress. She's not like, part of your generation.
0: Oh. She's, she's not part of your generation.
1: Right, that's maybe the Gen Z uh, pessimistic sensibility. Um, but you, you, you sort of like gotta, you sort of gotta, I don't know, when you're, when you're in our shoes, having been informed by those experiences, I and mean, that's eight years, right? What did Ta-Nehisi Coates say, eight years in power? I mean, that just, that's a lot of my childhood where I'm frustrated by what's going on, but I'm fundamentally full of hope and think that no matter what you think of as politics, our leader has character and ran a campaign with dignity. And that makes me think that there's still a possibility that it's still worth fighting. There's a reason that we end the book quoting Cody Keenan because you know, the people who helped create and build on that rhetoric of the Obama presidency, I mean, they're the ones who I think are most clear eyed about the challenges before us, but also believe there's something we can do about it. And I'm just not ready for nihilism yet because I think that genuinely the facts indicate that we can make a difference and we can make the world a better place. And just as you said, every year of freedom matters, you know, every 10th of a degree that we keep the world uh, from, from heating up matters to millions of current humans and future humans and the fight, you know, makes a big difference. And so I think that's very much, um, you know, a product of growing up with the Obama presidency. That whole tension between the world as it is and the world as it can be that he described, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. But did any part
0: of their repudiation by enough of America to completely you know, change who was in power, did any part of that have the effect of extinguishing that hope or did the example of what Obama was able to do when it seemed impossible, make you know that uh, it's really possible that the Trumpy DeSantos order is also something that can be washed away.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just look at the history of America and there's both. Like, that's what this book tries to do, is we try to leave you in a hopeful place in that you're an agent and can make a difference, but. The whole time, there's people on both sides of this thing. There's the people who are inching away, inching away at progress and the people fighting back against it. And so personally for me, you know, emotionally, you, it's, it's just trying to quiet that voice that tells you that none of the progress mattered.
0: Yeah, that's useful. Very useful to do. Very important to do. As a, as a rhetorician, how, uh, and a, a lot of what, speech writers do it seems to me and a lot of just sort of what what uh everybody involved in helping candidates or message shape is like uh, build these people up into more than human you know into almost superheroes uh who can move you know blow down houses with a single breath or you know or, or like superman and superwoman but Um, super people, but like I have found, and then I, you know, I haven't been an innocent for a really long time, but like when I watched Rubio and Cruz be so calculating in the way in, in their, uh, in, in becoming co-opted in using that co-option to like relaunch themselves, I'll say it like really, and the fact that their own constituencies like supported those moves, that their uh they the way that we watched them completely sublimate what you saw their truth was in a way, and it was crushing to me because it was yeah, like it made everything seem hopeless. Much. Yeah, right. no. it seems hopeless to me
1: it's debilitating but i think i do think like you know if i were a never trump republican i'd feel pretty hopeless like i think that party has been completely co-opted and then at a human level right like ted cruz like he insulted like your wife like he called your wife like ugly man and he just flipped cruz you know people forget this he gave that he said he's gonna vote his conscience at the convention like he kept up this ruse of not being a trump guy for a long time and then, you know, completely folded. As a human, yeah, it's disgusting. It makes you feel horrible. And I understand how it could lead to a lack of hope. For me, I just metabolized that as drive to try to kick these people's asses. Like, that's what I wish the Democratic Party had more of. The thing that annoys me, you know, as a, as a, as a rhetorician, uh, per your term, is like... The house is on fire. Republicans are every bit as authoritarian, as fascistic, as extreme, as unprincipled, as the loudest alarmists say that they are. And Democrats, glad you've come
0: around to my side on that. By the way, it took years to get you to my side of that. That's that's not true.
1: I just thought that <gasps> they would survive the last election. I just wasn't like you know packing up spam on January fourth. Uh, by the boatload, worried that there wasn't going to be democracy January seventh. As though I figured it would give me an excuse to, to eat spam. It was an excuse to eat spam. Spam's pretty good, actually. Turns out, read uh, my old cooking and quarantine newsletter with Lucas Sin on good ways to prepare spam. But you know, I believe that the Republican Party is every bit as insane as the loudest alarmists think, and it's why I'm so pissed that the Democratic Party is asleep at the wheel, treating them like a normal opponent, treating every election like a normal election, and just sucking. Like this administration and its agents in Congress have put up one of the worst performances. Like if you think the Phoenix Suns in game seven against the Dallas Mavericks was bad. Like you'd love Chuck Schumer. Like you wouldn't even believe what he's pulled off as Senate majority leader in concert with the administration. Like they came in.
0: You're saying he, he, he's worse than if I want to fire Monty Williams after that game, I got to want to fire Chuck Schumer.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, I would make Monty Williams Senate Majority Leader tomorrow. Challenge cinema in a primary. Let's go over the status quo. OK. Like, I mean, I don't know. We don't need to like this isn't a politics podcast, but like they come into office and they're getting the uh, they got the tailwinds of like a pandemic that's starting to end and an economy that's starting to be normal and managed to be the most unpopular administration Since the beginning of polling at this time in their presidency, by passing essentially no laws, the laws that they passed, the big rescue package, it's all expired. The unemployment benefits or whatever obviously expired. And then the child tax credit, which was great, that's expired. Voting rights, nothing. Inflation's been a disaster in large part because of their policies. They've done nothing to combat it. 8% inflation is essentially an 8% wage cut across the board for every single American president who said he was going to raise the minimum wage. So yeah, you look at this and you can be fucking devastated. You've got these evil people who are pretty good at being evil. And then you've got these like kind of good people who are like pretty bad at being good, but I guess just like I'm young. I think that like we more Americans agree with us than agree with them. If we just get our fucking act together and like, you know, the answer to this is just definitely not to disengage I'm not like, going to do like a corny, like rock the vote, turn out, whatever. It's annoying. Like we all voted, beat Trump. This guy became president. It's been a disaster. But like the only answer here is to just elect better people and to get this generation of incompetent leaders out of office and start, you know, putting people in place who can actually do a half decent job. Yeah, but job. what do
0: you have to do? So what do you have to do to get your peers to turn up at the polls in meaningful um, amounts Because, right, the other side of the fact that the franchise at times is in jeopardy is that, and I know in your book you say, well, people should also have the right to protest by not voting, blah, 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 blah. No, I mean, I'm, but,
1: I'm in favor of, I mean, if if we could do, you know, mandatory voting and you could just vote. Present, I'd be. would be. But
0: def- but Attorney General Holder in the book is pretty clearly like some people. Yeah, there's a line in the book about that. Some people yeah, yeah, choose yeah. to exercise their um, displeasure by not voting, and they have the right to do that. And they do have the right to do that. Yeah. But what do we do? What do you do to get your generation to believe that it's they can something must change? They're the one. It had they. It can be changed. And they're the ones to change it. Like that feels uh, uh, essential. And because look, there were good younger candidates. You know, for me, I would make it that you can't get elected to the presidency if you're over seventy. But uh, uh, I would, you know, that we have we have uh, laws about how old you have to be to attain office. So I don't have a problem with saying at a certain age you, you can't anymore. What do we have to do? Like. Okay, some people don't like uh, think Beto is the right person. I happen to be a huge fan. Um, you know, uh, Mayor Pete Klobuchar. There are so many people who uh, were young, but couldn't get any uh, traction. And I and I think that it, part of it is that young people didn't really come out.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of that is lowering the barriers to be able to vote, making it so voting doesn't feel so hard, long lines, et cetera. You know, you look at places that put in place reforms to make it easier to vote in 2020 because of the pandemic, Harris County and Houston, and you just saw record turnout, including from young people, when you make it so that there's more polling places on campuses and you don't have to go from, you know, your class to your student job and cancel one so you can wait in line for two hours. Obviously more people are gonna vote. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally we have politicians who don't excite people. I mean, look, like, here's the crux of the problem. Like, you gotta kind of, like, to some extent, suck to, like, wanna go be a politician. Like, you don't have to, but, like, if you just look at most of the people who, like, wanna be president, it's a self selecting group of people who wanted to be president. Like, obviously, the problem with Harvard is that, everyone at Harvard's a kid who wanted to go to Harvard, which is like, it's an annoying self-selecting group. Like
0: you, you I mean, you're like, one, of, I mean, to be clear, you're one of those
1: that's people. That's what I'm saying that, that, that like, you know, one of the reasons maybe I didn't find college so enjoyable because everyone around me was some fucking Harvard douchebag. Right. So you like, look at politicians and they're pretty. Hi, Tim. Hi, Natty. Hi, Jerks. Yeah, uh, there were some exceptions. Um, But, you know, you, you try to find politicians who talk like humans and, It's a rare thing. And that's what President Obama did. And it's why so many young people turned out and voted agree with her, disagree with her. That's why so many people are excited by AOC who just talks like a human being. And, you know, Trump in his own way talked like a human being to a different group of Americans who were excited to go vote for him. And like, you know, you just got to find Bernie Sanders too, but you just got to find the politicians who can reach people in that way and get them to run and make it easier to run for office. And, you know, I think, like, you're just not going to get that many young people to get excited about an 80 year old candidate, especially when Well, one. but
0: th- th- and this ties into, I think, uh, something I-, I really did want to ask you about, which is from a young age, you wanted to work in politics. And then you did. You worked for Hillary. You worked for Biden. But you, don't re- you wrote this book, which is about democracy, and I'd separate democracy from politics in a huge way uh the books about keeping democracy and the sacrifices we have to make in order to do that and we should make but does politics still is is it still animating for someone like you in terms of working inside of it in any way or are you finding yourself in your mid 20s uh having had you know real success at this uh looking at other ways to express yourself and try to uh, influence uh, people.
1: The issues excite me. Like politics itself is pretty poisonous. Like, you know, I think the people in it are often an echo chamber. You talk to my friends in politics in the group chat and, you know, in any group chat I'm in and they're funny and know what's going on are logical. And then you watch them go on cable news and defend actions from the administration that, are indefensible. It's really hard if you're really working in politics and care about getting the next job and the next administration in a good place to be honest about what's so broken. And so I'm not sure that the way I'll create the most change is by working on campaigns of existing people who are you know already in power. But yeah, I'm like just as fired up about the actual issues as I've ever been and even more outraged than I've ever been at our inability to do the right thing and get shit done in a way that actually helps people i mean the way like seeing that like seeing the child tax credit which got rid of child poverty by half just vanquished because of bad politics and bad messaging i mean yeah that makes me there's nothing i want to do more than just find a way to get better policy passed and defended and get that message out i'm just not sure that the way that'll happen is um from within the arena
0: You know, I I think a decent amount about what happened in the NBA bubble and um, about how post George Floyd, there was this moment of people recognizing their ability to band together, to make their feelings known, but beyond that, to insist upon change. And, um, The Voting Rights Act, because if I think about it, the Voting Rights Act, what the Supreme Court did to the Voting Rights Act, which just to, I'm going to try to lay it out from the reading of the book. Please correct me. Because even these words, Voting Rights Act, like they just, I know they just go by people because there's nothing to hold on to, right? But what used to be the case was if, Um, a state or a city or uh, wanted to enact legislation that would have the effect of uh, reducing who could vote, before it went into effect, it had to be approved by uh, uh, these judges. And now it no longer has to be approved ahead of time so they can enact this fucked up shit stop people from voting, and by the time you can challenge it, the election's already fucking happened because you're looking at what the result was. Is that close to right?
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, that's basically right.
0: And, uh, but the result of that is like, so many people are gonna fucking die and be hurt and not be um, represented, right? Because the reason we wanna have a government that represents our interests and we have more people be able to vote is so that all of our interests can be represented. But this issue had very little protest happened around this. Some, very little, very little understanding. You know, I see what happened uh, when Alito's decision on uh, Roe v. Wade came out and everyone mobilized as they should. Why do you think people don't understand in a, in a, in a deeper way, even the people most affected, don't understand how important this is
1: yeah i mean voting rights just is fundamentally abstract and ag holder does a good job of grounding this but it's like the reason i care about voting rights isn't like solely voting rights qua voting rights it's because like voting rights is like how you protect the right to choose like you look at that supreme court ruling from alito and that's like that's just cause. that's only possible because like you know a lot of the Supreme Court appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, advice and consent from the Senate, body that massively overrepresents white rural voters, state legislatures gerrymandered that appoint representatives who passed these laws in the first place that restrict the, right, the right to vote like all of that comes back to democracy, but people don't think of it that way It's like one level of abstraction away care about criminal justice reform, care about climate change, care about gun rights care about anything. Voting is the way that you make a difference. And so getting people to care about the ballot itself, is hard because it's been safe for so long because so many of the people who are part of that struggle are no longer with us and we take it for granted. That's the downside of growing up with President Obama is, you know, we saw our democracy work. And when you look at, when you look at reconstruction, like people didn't realize how quickly that Progress was going to be wiped away. It happens, right. before you know it. And then you're digging yourself out of a hole again. And it's very hard. You know, I wrote a thread about Roe v. Wade one week before the decision draft came out. And I was like, what the hell are we doing? Like, are we just going to wait for this decision to come out and not talk about abortion rights? I literally wrote it one week beforehand. I was like, hey, President Biden, why aren't you making a speech every time a state passes a bill that reduces right. reproductive rights? But until the thing is lost, it's very hard for people to like, get an understanding of it. And then there's also a limitation and people's thinking about what's possible. So like people trim their own sails all the time. Like they sort of take it for granted that there's gonna be two hour hour long lines to vote. Like why do you take that for granted? Like you can actually make progress there. And so, you know, I think like it's just tough to viscerally get people excited about something that's been there for them their whole lives. And I also wanna like separate this out. Like there are like black activists all across the country who have organized and talked about this issue nonstop. You look at Georgia, like the reason we won in Georgia again, the reason we have the Senate in the first place, the reason we won it in the presidential election is because Stacey Abrams, others, led this organizing campaign for the right to vote and made it an issue people protested about and cared about. And, you know, it led to a huge wave in voter turnout. So we can make a difference here if we decide to care. It's just about, you know, making that choice to give a shit. Yeah, that, that
0: makes sense the way I... I still am not sure because um, most people, everyone should go buy the book, but most people aren't going to read, as you know, like most people aren't going to read a book about, uh, about voting rights. Yeah, but and you so should,
1: m- listener, like you can be.
0: Yeah. Be the person who does do oh, that right. for sure. I read every word of this fucking thing. Cause I don't fake the funk. Uh, and even though it's very depressing throughout most of it, um, they there are concretized uh, suggestions at, at at the end. Though I remain incredibly pessimistic. Reason
1: teach you that word concretized?
0: Did what teach it to me? And Reason. And reason. <laughs> he knows it. I'll tell you what. He knows the word. Sure. The funniest thing, Sammy. You'll really find this funny, and maybe some of the listeners of the show will too. But I read a great. Uh, I read a great. Uh, I think it was a tweet today, where someone said. And uh, whoever you are who said it, I, here's the credit to you. I did not say this. But someone said the, the, the worst trick uh, ever played on uh, the younger generation was having uh, the grad school teach undergrads the word liminal.
1: That's pretty funny. We've got that word in the book.
0: Yeah, it's in the book. No. I taught it to you, though. I use that word. I think I sadly. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. that's.
0: I sadly propagated uh, the yeah, use so of.
1: Most people are not reading the book, you were saying. So the the question is how
0: how to talk about the franchise. One thing is the word the franchise is amazing, and people should start really using it much more. Exercising the franchise. The franchise. Yeah, because sure. exercising the franchise the best. It we'll has all these good associations: uh,
1: franchise, player. People like the, you know. Also, like,
0: it sounds like a great code for, you know, congrats on the sex. Like, I exercised the franchise last night. Like, it. Oh, no. It just seems (laughs) like one could really use it and get it into the vernacular.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exercise the franchise. Sure. Um, Right. That makes sense. I mean, look, I just don't think it's like, it's going to be a game of words. Like, I think fundamentally, you're going to get people to care about this because they're afraid of losing it, our democracy. Like. People moved on from that image of these people storming the Capitol on January 6th very quickly and then decided to ignore the fact that in all these state capitals across the country, Republicans are passing these laws so that next time if this happens, there's a contested presidential election. It really like might succeed. And so I don't know, just like, getting people fucking clear about what's going on so that they understand the threat. You don't have to talk about it as voting rights or whatever else. It's like your rights, your freedom, your liberty is like under threat. Everything you want might not happen. But honestly, like you've got to find candidates who can talk about this in a compelling way who are exciting. Like the people matter as much as the message, but like, the messenger is just is just so, so, so critically important. And the people we have now are fundamentally not up to the task. I mean, look, Joe Biden, Barack Obama's vice president, Pelosi and Schumer have been our leaders for you know decades. These are not people who are acutely aware of the unique threat that we face right now. They think it's all working.
0: Okay. So if someone's listening to this, because this is what I really thought, like, so reading the history in the book, it's incredibly well written. It's so compelling, but it really is a fucking bummer. Yeah. But and then yes, you 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 make these real suggestions, but like the real politic of our age does make me wonder if that change is possible. So if someone's listening to this, and yeah, what what yeah real politic yeah what
1: can people do now. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess I just like fundamentally disagree that this is a uniquely challenging time to make a difference. Like you just like really like think about what it was like for those women who didn't have any rights at all to fight for the franchise. Like couldn't sue their husbands in court because they didn't have any rights at all. And, like, what they did was crazy shit that made people in power pay attention. Like, that's the thing. is like, people in power, you know, power suits nothing without a demand, is how Douglas put it. But, like, you really got to protest in a way that gets people's attention. I mean, like, when I talk about Alice Paul starving herself, like, that wasn't, like, fun or in the realm of the normal. Like, it wasn't people just going about politics the same way you go about politics every day. When I talk about... Thomas Doerr bombing the state capitol. No one should resort to violence, but like people were fucking putting themselves on the line. Why
0: don't people understand? But this is my question, even with Roe decision, which is so clearly the result of everything you're talking about. Why don't people understand this very thing that it is worth doing outrageous things to ensure that everyone can vote and to fucking vote?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I actually think that this row thing will be a moment where we'll start to see the kind of activism that you need. I mean, look, like it is also weird. Like people are burning themselves, these climate activists. And like everyone's kind of shrugging about it. But like, you know, don't burn yourself. There's ways to create change where you're not letting yourself on fire, obviously. Seriously don't do that. Self he's um,
0: talking about self immolation. That's, what, seriously they, that's don't, what one really calls it. Don't self immolate.
1: No, but for real don't, but like, you gotta like, you gotta fucking put yourself on the line. Like, like you really do have to like, maybe like miss work one day and like show up to a protest. You really do have to like go to your representative's door and start knocking. You do have to make their lives difficult. Like you do really have to like get up all up in there. If you give a shit about these issues, like it just doesn't work that you can like hang back and hope that progress happens. Like it's not a coincidence that Obama had this great message it also inspired people to knock on more doors than ever before the greatest grassroots campaign in history. Like you have to like, you do have to sort of like get on your feet and like go try to make a difference, but you're right. The, the thing that first has to happen is you have to decide that it matters. Like yeah. people have to decide that it matters. Those women who were starving themselves decided it mattered for voting rights. Like, you know, Thomas Doerr decided it mattered. And so first thing you have to do is like, how important is this to you? Like, your rights, rights of your fellow citizens. And then like, what are you willing to do to defend those rights to stand up for them? And like, you know, maybe it is running for office yourself. Maybe it's convincing a bunch of friends to go to the polls with you on election day. It's all this cliche shit, but it's what works and what makes a difference. And like, you just have to do it. Like, you just have to actually, like, it sucks. Like, it's so, like, part of the thing, like the Pinker thing we're talking about is like, life's pretty good materially. Like, you know, and there's a reason that so many dystopian movies and stuff. It's like everyone lounging in the Matrix, watching, you know, or yeah. watching their headsets, Ready Player 1 or whatever, and they're just chilling out cuz like quality of life's pretty good in this future that we live in. Like where you're eating good food, you can DoorDash it. Like there's things that are like pretty good for people, especially, you know, before this inflation people had extra money to spend. Uh, you know, cuz cuz from the government. Like this is a period of time when things feel relatively all right. But you've to understand that they're not that this progress we've made is tenuous, that your complacency is leading to other people's conditions deteriorating. And then you have to fucking do something. So, you know, that's the situation. And recognizing it's the first step and then doing something's the second.
0: People, fucking do something. Start by buying and reading this book and then fucking do something. With our our last few minutes, uh, I just wanna ask you how you felt watching Luca do what he did the other night.
1: This is what I'm saying. So I watched Luca do what he did, and he was incredible, right? And the Phoenix Suns had no answer for what Luca did, right? The Republicans are not nearly as good at politics as Luka Doncic. Like Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat. Nothing like... Luka Doncic. Those skills are far more unique.
0: I mean, LeBron is your favorite basketball player of all time.
1: What I'm telling you, listeners, is that Chuck Schumer and the Democrats are as ill-equipped for this fight as the Phoenix Suns were for Luka Doncic and that offense. And they're fighting a worse opponent, but they're getting trampled. They're getting destroyed. And it really is Like, it sucks. Like, I wouldn't want to do this. Like, this isn't fun. Like, it sucks. But we, people who are, like, listening to this podcast and have even a semblance of, like, reasonability and semblance of an understanding of, like, how people live and what people like and what people care about. Like, it's on us. We're the last line of defense or defense, to use the metaphor, uh, of our democracy. This is one of those moments that will shape the next half century. There is really this tension between a party that wants to roll back our progress and folks who want to expand it and expand our democracy to more people. So, you know, which side are you going to want to be on Lucas or the Phoenix suns? Never mind. We analogize Luca to the other side, which side are you going to be on the the side that, uh, that that lays down or the side that actually decides decides to uh, fight back and win a championship for democracy.
0: I think uh, just to go back to basketball for one second, I want your predictions. Here's what I think. I think we're going to have Heat, Mavs, Mavs win. What do you think?
1: Wow. You think Mavs are going to win the title? I bet on the Mavs before the last round to win the title. So that would be a great outcome for me. I do think that Jimmy Butler is the current guy closest to Kobe and Jordan in terms of that work ethic and drive. He's a maniac. I think the Celtics are really fucking tough, but my guess is – yeah, I actually think the Heat are winning that series too. I kind of think, I kind of think Steph's going to sneak you win the title, but we'll see.
0: Well, there would be something kind of glorious in that too. I can I am. Uh, I'm rooting for the West. Yeah, you know who I'd really take, and I know you would too. If if you told me that Spo would study for two years and then take over the DNC, I would say, "Let's go, Spo."
1: Spo, I'm in Miami. Call me. Let's do this thing.
0: I mean, if Spo. If Spoh was ready to like general this fucking thing, I he is so underrated and so was, smart.
1: Was Pat Riley as Secretary of Defense? Spo and Riles. Chris Bosch could be the VP. I mean, I'm voting. I'm turning out.
0: We're all showing up to vote. Sammy,
1: thanks, Dad. I don't say
0: this to many podcast guests, but I love you.
1: <laughs> I love you too.
0: Thanks. Uh, thanks for being here. Folks, Sam is on Twitter. I am really not very much on Twitter anymore. You can find Sam at Sammy Koppelman. You can find me on the Instagram. Uh, I will not be on Twitter tweeting until I know for sure Donald Trump. I will not play in Donald Trump's sandbox. Any sandbox Donald Trump's in, I am not going to be in. You can find me on the gram or you can email me the momentbk at gmail.com. I think the younger generation should be on there fighting uh, on Twitter. I just personally I just, I think Trump probably sits down in the sandbox and farts and a little bit gets out into the sand. Then I don't want to play in his feces sand. So That's how uh,
1: you end up with the worm.
0: Yeah, that's how you end up with ringworm. <laughs> Everybody, we will see you next time on The Moment. Sammy, fly home safe tonight.